Hi friends, future Jillian here. I just wanted to pop in really quick and give you guys kind of a warning, but not really. Um, just a friendly reminder that you were listening to our earlier episodes. So at this point, we were still kind of figuring out our groove and figuring out what we were doing. And so please don't judge us on these ones. At least give some of the newer ones a listen. We really got into it around episode four or five, but we got our new microphones in episode nine. So you will notice quite a bit of a sound quality difference if you're listening backwards from our newest episodes to our first episodes. So just wanted to give you guys a heads up and thanks for listening. Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Murder and Misery. We are your hosts. My name is Heather. And I'm Jillian. And we are back together for another episode. This is another one, I guess one episode. One parter. One parter. There we go. (laughs) Um, As always, I don't know what it's about, so Jill's going to have to take it away. Okay, so just like some or really most of our cases that we've done so far, um, this tragedy occurred in our neck of the woods of Lincoln County, Missouri. Are you joking? No. (laughs) I can't. This is upsetting me. I don't understand why there's so much crime in Lincoln County. Okay, continue on. Well, really, there's a lot of crime in Lincoln County, but I was surprised to find out how many murders were in Lincoln County. Well, I know there's a lot of crime, like, especially drug-related crime. Um, I know that there are, like, crimes like that and, like, theft, but not to this degree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm I'm glad that the I'm so sorry, guys. I'm, like, throwing us back. But I'm really glad that the Pam Hub case ended the way that it did because I probably would have been scared of her for the rest of my life. <laughs> I don't like the look you're giving me. Well. We're in Lincoln County. <laughs> um, Is it right by my house? No. Okay, thank God. So, um... But well, she's giving me looks of like this is not gonna end well, and this person's like out on the loose. So I'm a little bit nervous. It is. She's scratching her head now. Oh no. Well, let's just get to the part first. So, um, for some of you guys that are just tuning in for your first time ever listening, uh, Lincoln County, Missouri is about an hour northwest of St. Louis, and that is where we both reside. So this case involves the murder of a beautiful young lady back in 1974. Miss Debbie Heitman, who was only 17 years old when she was brutally killed by someone from her high school. Deborah Ann Heitman was born on July 17th, 1956. July 17th? Mm-hmm. That's one day before my birthday. That's the day that's on the iPhone calendar. You know what I'm talking about? No. Like in the emojis, the calendar, it says July 17th. Oh, oh. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, that's July 17th. And you only know that because it's, it's the, the day, day before my birthday. <laughs> I was like, who memorizes emojis? But that makes a lot more sense. Okay. No, it's just because it's the day before my birthday. <laughs> so we're talking about murder, and it's like, emojis! I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> Please don't I'm ashamed. Be a- <laughs> I'm so sorry, everybody. Tell me what her name was again. Uh, Deborah Ann Heitman. Rest in peace, so Deborah. Debbie. Rest in short. peace, Debbie. Um, she was born on July 17th, 1956, to John Delbert and Rose Ann Anthony Heitman. Debbie, as she was called, was the oldest of seven children that also included Dottie, David, Danny, Dennis, Darlene, and Dee Dee. There is a personal connection here. Debbie was in the same class as my Aunt Mary and in the grade above or below, I can't remember which, of my Uncle Marlon. Her younger sister, Darlene, graduated with my mom and aunt. The Heitman family lived near Old Monroe, Missouri, and like many other small towns in our area, children usually attended high school in Troy, Missouri. She went to Troy. Mm-hmm. Troy Buchanan. However, Old Monroe 
at least at that time, had a largely Catholic population. The Hyman family were members of the Immaculate Conception Church, so the children likely attended the school that was at the church through 8th grade, and then transferred to Buchanan High School in Troy. In 1974, Debbie Heitman was a senior at Troy Buchanan High School. She was only 17 years old and getting ready to graduate in just a few short weeks. This was also one that was um, actually requested by a couple people locally because... Nobody requests anything to me. Rude. <laughs> I'm sure Tina will at church. I saw her at church. We go to church at the same time. She sits right in front of me. Well, she's in like five stories. Well, she probably just knows that you're the one that's telling the stories and I'm the one that's not telling the stories. Um, oh, yeah, then she couldn't tell you what they are. Yeah. So my mom actually showed me a Debbie senior picture, and she was a beautiful young lady with shoulder-length hair, and she just had a smile that lit up the room. And from what everyone told me about Debbie, she was absolutely the sweetest. She was even nice enough to give people a ride home if they needed. Oh, that is really nice. I always gave people rides home, and I was happy to do it, but it is an inconvenience. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you doing this Sorry. <laughs> Uh, is, is this where the story turns bad? Yeah. Why is this always happening to me? Yeah. Um, I feel like I comment on the wrong thing every time. Me too. And I'm so sorry to ruin this for you. But on April 15th of 1974, just about 15 minutes after the last bell rang, Debbie gave another student named David Atkins, who was only 14 years old, a ride home after school. 14 and he murdered somebody? I didn't say he murdered her. You're jumping ahead. No, you, at the beginning you said she got murdered by somebody at her school. And then you just said she got murdered because she gave somebody a ride home, so it had to have been him. Yeah. So, since he was 14, it probably made him a freshman or a sophomore at the time. But the school is small enough that everybody probably knew everyone else. Um, I know I didn't go to Troy Buchanan, Heather did, Mm -hmm. but I still think compared to a lot of the other schools, Troy is still smaller versus like O'Fallon and stuff like that. Am I wrong? You, well, now I would say Troy's actually bigger, just because, oh. yeah, because we only have one high school, and, Everybody's like, playing. everybody else has, like, several, like, high schools. Like, Zoom won't. And we have one high school. That makes sense. Well, I feel like it was definitely a lot smaller in the 70s. Right. And so it probably was a lot smaller then. I oh. still feel like everybody kind of knew about who everybody was. Oh, yeah. And I, I didn't feel know like... everyone, but, like, I'd heard of just about everybody. Right. And you knew somebody who knew somebody. Right. 100%. Right. So, this being the case, she probably didn't even think twice about giving him a ride. Yeah. Around 3.30 p.m., a young housewife named Jean, who was likely tending to her three children at the time, looked out of her window and noticed a car she didn't recognize in the gravel road near the driveway in the front of her house. It was Debbie, who was seated in the driver's seat, and Atkins who was in the passenger side with the door open. Again, Jean did not recognize these people, but she later reported that it looked like they were slapping at one another at arm's length. Because it seemed more strange than necessarily dangerous, Jean called her mother while she continued to keep an eye on the car and the occupants. She saw the boy get out of the car, then he got back in the car, and struggling started up again. Suddenly, the horn sounded, and Jean realized that this was serious and told her mother to call the sheriff. Then Jean saw the boy get out of the car again, look around, and run away from the car. Jean said she saw a flash and thought he had a knife. She tried to call for additional help, but couldn't get through to anyone. Now, this was in 1974, so 911 was very new. I did not know this. (laughs) But actually, in January of 1968, the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, which is AT&T, also didn't know that until I looked this up, 
announced that within its serving areas, the digits 911 were available for installation on a national scale as the single emergency telephone number. I'm not sure what year 911 extended out to Lincoln County because we are rural. I want you to know you're like really serving me some history facts right now. Well, that's... I didn't know about at and I didn't, I didn't know when 911... And I didn't know that that's what it stood for and my dad works there. I could only find that the Lincoln County Communications Center was established in county commissioners on October 26th of 1996, this was a coordinated effort involving all city and county law enforcement, ambulance, and fire agencies began serving by the communication center. Since 1996 was the year that we were both born, I have no idea if people had to call the ambulance or sheriff's department directly before that, and I couldn't find any of that specific information. So I'm not sure, but I am sure it was absolutely terrifying when Jean couldn't get a hold of anyone. She ran out of her house and stopped some neighbors who were returning to their home. As they finally were able to get an ambulance on the way, they still could see the boy running off in the distance. When Sheriff Creech got there, which Creech is still a very prominent name in Lincoln County, which I think is so crazy, like reading all the stories and the people involved. um, Their families are still here. Yeah. When Sheriff Creech got there, he saw Debbie lying in the front seat of the car covered in blood. It seemed obvious to him that she had died. Her shirt was ripped, and so was the zipper on her pants. Jean quickly told the sheriff everything that she had observed. She also gave a description of the boy and told the sheriff the exact direction she saw him running. The sheriff chased the defendant to the nearby railroad tracks. Using the loudspeaker on his patrol car, the sheriff identified himself and ordered the defendant to halt. The boy threw something and continued to run. This object, of course, was retrieved and identified as the knife, just as Jean had thought it was. Finally, after a bit more of a foot pursuit and repeated orders to stop, Adkins can I, can was I, Can I add caught. something? I'm so sorry. Uh-huh. Um, I just want to say, Jean has a good eye. Mm-hmm. She saw a flash and she was like, there must be a knife. Yeah. And then she knew exactly where he went. Yeah. And I also think it's crazy because, like, they didn't have 911 to call. That would be terrifying. And I didn't realize until after I, like, looked into this that it wasn't uh, completely established until literally the year we were born. Yeah, that's which that's crazy. Yeah, because like I never thought about life before having nine one one. That you literally. I had thought about it, but, but in the fifteen and sixteen hundreds, not like, not like the year my brother was born. <laughs> the fifteen sixteen. Also, I'm like, oh, you have to call down to the sheriff's house or whatever. Jill said, "Get on your horse." <laughs> anyway, while he was being apprehended, Atkins attempted to discard a wet and blood-stained handkerchief, but the sheriff told him to put it back into his pocket. Just put the evidence back in your pocket, boy, is what I assume that happened. Um, Atkins was sweating and had blood smeared on his hands and his elbows. So there was no doubt that this was the one that was involved in killing Debbie. Makes sense. But just to be certain, the sheriff took Atkins to Jean's house and asked her if this was the one she had witnessed in the incident. Of course, Jean confirmed that it was without any hesitation. Listen, I trust her. Right. She seems like she's got a good head on her shoulders. I don't know her, but she seems like she knows what she's talking about, and I would believe her. Right. And now, I'm not using Jean's last name out of respect for her privacy, even though it is a part of the public records, but I am so proud of her for standing up and doing everything in her power as a bystander. And even though she had to, even though this had to be such a traumatic thing to witness. Oh, 100%. She, she's literally at home with her kids. Right. And witnessed it happen. Yeah. Even though, you know, she wasn't in the car and couldn't see exactly what was happening, like, to just know and see in the aftermath. Right. Um, but she testified in court and did her best to ensure justice was served. 
She went on to become a successful businesswoman in our town. And Jean, we're proud of you. <clears throat> you did a really good job. Very proud. I don't know you, but I'm so proud. I'm well. I'm honestly anybody that does that much just as a bystander gets a gold star in my book because it's scary. So immediately, Adkins was placed in the custody of a deputy. Adkins then told the deputy where he threw the knife, and together they went and retrieved it. The knife's leather shear was found outside of the car, near the open door of the passenger side. Poor Debbie was transported to Lincoln County Memorial Hospital and examined by the emergency room surgeon, the coroner, and the chief medical examiner. According to the official report, it was found that her blouse had multiple tears and was pulled back to her neck. The zipper of her slacks had been torn open. She had multiple stab wounds on the face, neck, chest, and abdomen, with massive bleeding due to a deep stab on the left jugular vein. My gosh. Penetrating through her corroded artery. My gosh. Now, I don't want to be too graphic, even though I just was, but it is very important, I feel, to emphasize the extreme brutality of this crime. Yes. Debbie's arm and hands had also also shown slash wounds on the posterior side in the palm and in the armpit. In total, there were approximately 30 stab wounds randomly directed at a 360-degree angle around her body. Seems like a pretty shut-dry case. However, even after literally being caught in the act, David Adkins claimed that he was innocent. During the trial, Adkins said that when he got out of the school building that day, all the buses had already left the premises. He said that on the previous occasions, he had always called his father for a ride. However, on this day, he decided to hitchhike home. He said when he was dropped off at that gravel road, which was about a mile before the road he lived, he said the person who gave him a ride didn't take him all the way home. However, when he was asked which direction the driver went after he had dropped him off, he indicated that the driver of the car continued in the same direction that they were originally going, which was towards Atkins' house. This was in the direction of Jean's driveway. However, I'm a little confused as to whether he admitted that Debbie was the one that gave him a ride, or if he was trying to claim that this was a mysterious other driver that had given him a ride, but this case did not have a lot of um, publicity, obviously because it was before social media, Yeah. so trying to find a bunch of evidence was not the easiest. But either way, he said that he was dropped off, and by the time he got to Jean's driveway, he noticed the car stopped with the motor running. He said that he looked inside and saw Debbie covered in blood. He claimed he learned in a first aid class how to take a pulse, so he touched her to feel for a pulse. He said he then walked to the passenger side of the car, found the knife, and took it, and ran away from the scene. You'd think maybe he was just getting help or something, but believe it or not, he said that he didn't attempt to get any help or any of the houses nearby because he, quote, didn't know if anyone was home. I don't understand the story. Why would you take the knife? That seems kind of odd. Yeah. Well, Adkins denied having any blood on himself when he was apprehended, but of course, he was rebutted by a testimony of the sheriff and expert police laboratory witnesses. Later evidence indicated that Adkins was seen walking towards the school parking lot when the buses were still parked on the premises, so he must have lied because he said that he was late for the bus and wasn't able to catch them, um, and so it sounds like he used the missed the bus as an excuse to get a ride home from Debbie. As for um, Atkins, I wasn't able to find out a lot of information, but my parents know in general who the Atkins family was, but not too much specifically about them. There was some character witnesses who did testify that Atkins had a reputation for peacefulness and good conduct. However, none of these same people saw him on that day in question, so they couldn't say anything about how he was acting in that specific time. 
During the trial, the jury found David Adkins guilty of second-degree murder and fixed his punishment at 75 years in prison. But Adkins appealed his lawyer and said that the evidence was in insufficient to support a conviction of a second-degree murder. But first- and second-degree murder were the only charges that the jury was instructed about. They left out manslaughter. According to the legal document, in order for homicide to be reduced from a murder to a manslaughter, there must be a sudden and unexpected assault, encounter, or provocation tending to excite the passion beyond control, which they tried in court, but thankfully it was, was not seen as a valid defense. According to the court transcript, here the evidence does not support a sudden unexpected assault. Tending to excite the passion beyond control, the slapping episode had determined the defendant had emerged from the automobile. At this time, the victim was still alive. The defendant then re-entered the automobile and engaged in a second struggle with the victim. So Adkins had time to think. That completely throws out any heat of the passion case. They then tried to go for the self-defense, which personally I don't think he was scared of anything but getting caught. Um, luckily, the court agreed and said that there is no indication that the stabbing was an unintentional act of defending. I mean, she literally had 30 wounds. Right. That's too many. Right. And I don't know. It, there was no, there was like no evidence I'm trying to think because I don't know what he said about the um, knife or, like, why he took it or threw it, which doesn't make any sense either. Mm -mm. Um, that literally makes no sense. Like, why would you come to a crime scene and then take the weapon? Right. but then That's, I'm, like, the number one thing that you wouldn't do. Right. Because then I'm, like, confused. But apparently, Adkins only decided that this was his defense after his conviction because I guess he pled innocent until after he was found guilty and okay, then tried then to say to explain why yeah oh okay i see i see the transcript went on to say the defendant does not only fail to make any claim that he thought it necessary to use deadly force but he also disclaimed doing the homicidal act at all because he said he only came upon the crime scene and you can't have it both ways there was no evidence from the defendant's testimony which constituted a claim of innocence that he acted under real or apparent necessity. And here's where Jean, Jean's testimony comes into play. The evidence indicates that the defendant and the deceased were slapping at one another, but the defendant removed himself from the place of struggle and then re-entered to renew the struggle, subsequently stabbing the victim approximately 30 times. The court said that where the accused continued or renewed the struggle was when he had the opportunity to abandon or decline further. For sure. He became the aggressor in that moment. Irrespective of whether he was at fault with the original difficulty, um, it doesn't really matter because, you know, even if she started slapping him first, he left the situation and she was fine at this point and then had time to think about it, then thought about it and went back in and stabbed her, which I'm not saying that she was the one that started the situation, but yeah, that's what they there's were There's no way to know, but yeah. Right, right. So, even if she had... He was just as much part of it at that point, for sure. Or, like you were saying, more a part of it, because he left and then came back. Right. And had time, time to think about it, which also throws out self-defense. Mm hmm So, because he did have a chance to get away, obviously. Um, in other words, if he came back, he clearly wasn't interested in stopping the act. He returned to the car in the slapping, as Jean had called it, and then used brutal and excessive force. So, in summary, on May 11th, 1976... And the Missouri Court of Appeals upheld the second-degree murder conviction and the sentence of 75 years in prison. 
Debbie is buried in the Immaculate Conception Catholic Church Cemetery in Old Monroe, Missouri. And now I will say, while the references I used were findagravedustia.com and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, I, for the life of me, could not find anything on um, David. If he was still in prison. Um, really? If he was dead, if he was alive. Had absolutely no clue. So We'll put links, by the way, um, in the show notes. We always try to put links to any sources that we used in the show notes. Yes. However, that's not where the story ends. Because... This is the end of the thing. It's not. Because <laughs> I could not find anything. And okay, I and... I have a question before we get on to David. Hmm. You had specifically mentioned that there was a bloody handkerchief. <laughs> was that just for fun or does this play a role? Into what I'm about to say? No, like in the case because you never mentioned it again. Right. Which that was just make... the end of that? Yeah, and the oh, same okay. thing, and they never mentioned the knife again, which I didn't understand. Yeah. Or at least not what I saw, but then, again, this was in the 70s, and I didn't want to reach out to involved parties, because I yeah. don't know what kind of trauma that would bring. Sure. Because, obviously, what happened was very traumatizing. But I have no clue, like, what was said about the handkerchief, or the knife, or why he would take it in his defense um apparently like he had like claimed his innocence and like his mom was like super upset and said that there was no way he could do this which i think it is shocking that it was a 14 year old but um well yeah i think so too but that doesn't mean that he didn't do it right he was literally seen in the car then she saw where he ran when he got out of the car then he was caught with a bloody handkerchief and the weapon Mm -hmm. like if you weren't guilty, you did all of the wrong things. Right. And she saw, Jean saw them in the car both alive. Right. So. I'm saying if, if for some reason, I'm, okay, I think Jean is right and I think he did it, just to be very clear. I'm saying with his story of, I got dropped off at the end of the gravel road, I was walking down, saw her in the car, I tried to take her pulse, then I went to the other side, took the knife, for what reason, I don't understand. And then I decided to run. Right. Like, that seems odd to me because why would you not then try to get help? I understand, like, saying, I don't know. I didn't know if anyone was home. But, like... You didn't even try. You could also say, like, I was running to my house to get help. Mm-hmm. But, like, that's not what he said. No, he was running away from his house. Right. That's what I'm saying. So, like, if you were trying to play this card of... I stumbled upon this, it scared me, and I realized she was dead. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, none of this goes together, because no. if that was the case, if you were to stumble upon it, and you were to see that somebody was dead, you have first aid knowledge, you check their pulse, no pulse, you would then try to call, I know you said they don't have 911, you would try to call the police or an ambulance or something like that. Mm-hmm. Why on earth would you be running away from your house? Right. And Where you passing know there's a all phone. of the houses. Right. That you're going, so like you clearly weren't going to get help. No. So like that's, and he didn't even try to say he was getting help. I know, which is crazy because you would think he would at least make that part up. Right. Like if you're trying to say, oh, I was innocent, I just stumbled upon it, you wouldn't be like, yeah, but I didn't care, so I just left her there. Right. And I don't know, I don't know. I know that, uh, you know, me and Heather both have degrees in in mental health areas, but I know that mental health were like the issues were not as they were very frowned upon until very recently right and who who's to say because his character witnesses it said he had like 20 character witnesses that were like this is not like him at all and who's not to say that he 
did like just have like a mental snap or something. I'm not saying he didn't because I'm none just of saying it makes sense. It didn't make sense. No, it didn't. So that's why I'm like, but then he he wanted to tell the truth about not wanting to help anybody, but he didn't tell the truth about being involved, which I'm confused about. I'm actually kind of confused about this whole thing, but I was more confused that me being FBI detective of the world, um, <laughs> I couldn't enlist Heather on this for obvious reasons because right. she doesn't know anything about. Not that she doesn't know anything. She's not allowed to know anything about the cases beforehand. However, okay, could not find anything on the dude. Yeah. Um, Sorry for interrupting. I just wanted to ask about the handkerchief because I was confused. You're totally fine. So, after I couldn't find anything, I was just like, okay, this man is a ghost. Couldn't find if he was still incarcerated. I reached out to some of my friends in law enforcement. Um, couldn't find anything. So, I actually posted about it in a investigative group on Facebook. And one of the admins reached out to me, and her name is Amber Woods, and she is the coolest person in the whole world because she is a private investigator on the side and does that for a living on the side. I know. And she actually said that everything that she found led her to believe that he was released early for credits that he earned while in prison. And she said this could include anything like... Uh, a combination of good behavior, working for the prison, mentoring programs, rehabilitation programs, compliance, prison overcrowding, etc. And she said she found a David Joseph dating back to 2007 who was born in June of 1959 living in Troy, Missouri, which is where he was originally from. And then she ran this man's criminal criminal record and he had multiple traffic infractions in the 2000s that appear to be related to truck driving. So she, she assumed that he was working as a tractor trailer driver, driver since his release, at least at some point. And then he had, and then she saw that he had a charge for second degree murder. So, um... He changed his name? I don't even think that he changed his name. Well, but... Why is he under David Joseph instead of David... David, David Joseph, Joseph Adkins, that's his middle name. It's weird that you couldn't find anything on him. I, I know. Guess. And I even... Well, the thing is, is that so I is don't... it just because his they're using, like, his full middle name instead of an initial, or... No, because I even put... This is what's so crazy. I even put David Joseph Adkins into CaseNet, which, if you don't live in Missouri, we have a thing <laughs> called CaseNet, which we use quite frequently. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it, anybody that's had any cases, um, even traffic tickets, seatbelt tickets, anything in the Divorce. state of Missouri... Divorce is a big one. In the state of Missouri, they will be listed on CaseNet. And I searched David Joseph Adkins in CaseNet. There was only one charge, and it was for the second-degree murder. And it was something that had been automatically inputted into the system, because obviously it's from the 70s. Couldn't find anything after that. But apparently he's still living in the area. I And I will say, we do not know what the situation was or what really happened. And like we said earlier, it could have been he just had a mental snap. He had a mental nervous breakdown. I don't I don't know what the situation was, but he was released. And I do want to say that I just hope that he did his time and learned from his mistakes. And I hope that he is a better rehabilitated man now. Um, no ill will towards anybody uh, involved in the case. But I know it's going to freak Heather out that he still lives here. I don't I don't feel particularly scared, honestly. I don't know why, but I don't feel like he's coming for me. Obviously, murdering somebody is a crazy thing to do. I am by mm-hmm. no means saying that it's not. But 
this isn't to me the same as like the other stories that we've talked about where like they plan it out that man tortured that young girl right the craziness that happened with betsy's case like those just seemed like on a different level of crazy Mm -hmm. than this level of crazy like and i know that they said like this wasn't just like a moment of passion and i like i understand the reason why they say that right but it also kind of seems like this was out of the ordinary mm-hmm. and not something like premeditated i feel like premeditated murder is like way crazier right the only thing that throws me off is he did lie about the bus situation yeah know? but that's I, true but again he could have just but we don't like, know if he had underlying mental and I don't, issues. Either. I don't know what was going on with the shirt being ripped and the pants being ripped and things right. like that. But, like, maybe he thought that she was cute and he wanted to ride home from her because he thought she was cute. And then she was like, you're a child. Like, right. we have no idea what right. happened. But I wonder if maybe he, like, had a crush on her or something, which is, like, not an appropriate reason to murder somebody by any means. Right. But I wonder if, like, he said he missed the bus because he was trying to talk to her or get to know her, or something like that. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Not an appropriate reason to murder somebody. Absolutely I'm not. just being extremely clear. I'm just trying to think as a 14-year-old boy. Minus the murder part. Well, obviously. Yeah. I'm not a murderer. I know, but, like, that makes a lot of sense if you think somebody's cute and you try to get a ride with them. Yeah. But... That's all I was thinking. Um, When you had said, like, other people at the school had noticed that whenever he walked out, the buses were still there... When we don't, don't we don't know if they knew. We each have other no idea, right? This is just, this is me trying to make a situation that doesn't make sense make sense, right? Which is a natural thing for the brain to do. I'm by no means trying to disrespect Debbie or her family or anything like that. No, I'm just wondering if. Also, like, I'm also not saying this to discount what occurred at all, but 14 is a kid. Yeah, like, who knows what he was doing or why he would say the things that he was doing because he's a child. Like, he was a child. You know what I mean? Right. And so, I don't know. I think that changes things, too. Like, I think a lot of times, obviously, children who commit crimes like this are charged as adults, which I I can understand why that happens. But I also think that we do have to take a step back and consider, like, their brain is a child's brain. Like, our brains do not fully develop until we're in our 20s. Right, and has actually... He was in adolescence. Well, he grew up in prison. Right, that's what I'm saying. But, like, when this occurred... I mean, my brother's 12 years old. Mm-hmm. He's two years younger than when this happened. I can't even... Like, my brother... I love my brother, but, like, he's, like, a goofy, dopey little boy. Like, right. he... And that's what... The crazy you, thing Does is... that make sense? Like, his thought processes are not to the thought process processes of being, like, the a malicious person. That... Does that make sense? Yeah. I really I really hope that this is not coming across the wrong way because, like, I am not trying to be disrespectful and, like, Debbie's loss of life was completely unacceptable. And I am by no means saying that it was okay. I'm just saying, like, it's also hard for me to think about a 14-year-old boy going to prison for 75 years because my brother is two years younger than that and he right. is truly just a kid. Well, and what's crazy is that apparently all of the character witnesses were describing him just like you're describing your brother yeah which is why i'm so like confused and of course you know i understand that we need to accept that some people can be rehabilitated through that's the whole reason that people get sent to prison is to be rehabilitated and i truly hope that that is what happened in this case and that he was let go early because 
they thought that he was able to participate in society again. But as we're saying, like, you cannot believe a child. It's like, yeah, I cannot, like, Heather's um, little brother, like, my god kid and her little brother are the same age. And I can't, I don't even know how I could wrap my head around. That's what I'm saying. Even being, him being able to do that. So it's like, it's just crazy. Um, and I wonder, like, obviously was not there, but I wonder if that's why there were so many character witnesses. Because people were, like, perplexed over what had happened. And I do think he did it. Like, I am oh, yeah. not saying that he didn't. I just think that would be so confusing for everybody in his life. Right. Just that's- because he is a kid. That's or he why, was a kid when it when it happened. Why I'm leaning towards like he had some mental issues, you know. I understand that there are like kids that are like serial killers or like a, I I agree as well, and that is a different situation. Right. But it does not seem like that is what this is. Right. If this story had gone like the last, where you said this psycho man, which like I don't even want to talk about that anymore because that one was really scary to me. Took this young girl and did the things that he did, and then some years later. Killed him, killed a woman. And that's just what we know he got caught. Exactly. Right. Like, that's very different to me because it, like, continued on forever and ever. It seems like maybe this man got out of, got out of prison and he's doing better. I don't know. I don't don't know know if that makes sense. Well, yeah. It totally does. And, um, you know. Maybe he got the help that he needed. I don't know. Like, I, I also can't understand why a 14-year-old would kill somebody. Like, I can't understand why that would occur. None of that makes sense to me. But I don't it's get hard it. to process. It's very thought. hard for me to understand. Like, right. Debbie did not deserve to lose her life. And I can't understand why a literal child would resort to that sort of violence. Right. Um, so, yes. That, that was what we know of, of him. If Amber does send me her, like, link to her private investigation work, um, we'll have it in the show notes. But I just want to end this. By saying um, that we do hope that David is rehabilitated and, you know, can safely live his life in society like everybody else. But I also do want to send all of my condolences to the Heitman family. 100%. And to everybody that was um, impacted negatively from that case. For sure. Um, I know we're trying to, like, just not justify, but trying to reason why he would do that. But that in no way takes away from the brutality of what did happen. I completely agree, and I hope that 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 was very clear when I with what I was saying. I am, I am not saying that it was okay. I'm just saying it's hard for me to wrap my head around, um, especially because of the family members that I have, and I definitely all of my thoughts and feelings go out to her family and Jean, who had to witness that, and the neighbors that stopped, and the sheriff, and like, I'm sure that those things stick with you for a lifetime, and I can't even imagine. And obviously, her family lost someone that they loved for no good reason at all right which is i feel like almost harder and i think it also is hard because it she went to you know my god she literally was gonna graduate in a couple of weeks like like what a lost life like what lost potential like it can't god it all just sucks this is like the most depressed we've ended an episode i know (laughs) like i mean i think it's just a hard case like it's hard to think about because this is our hometown it's hard to think about because she was so young and he was so young and like what a wasted life on both of their accounts like he was a kid she was a kid like they had their whole lives in front of them and what sort of a senseless act took all of that away like her family tragically lost 
her. You know what I mean? Like at the she, peak of her life. Exactly. She's right. literally about to graduate. Like who even knows who she could have become? Like what a tragedy. Right. And I think this one kind of like, you know, the Pam Hub case we did was so like crazy. It was hard not to laugh at like, or like, it was be just like, so absurd. what the heck? Yeah. But every other case we've done aside from that until this one have been wholesome endings i mean don't get me wrong yeah, that's true but like these people you know took their lives there's like, some sort of like justice right like brian is a motivational speaker and mary she's making her art living her life right and so it's like this one we don't even have like you know there's really no closure yeah yeah I and agree. so i think that's why this one feels different yeah and i think too like at least for me it just hits different when it's kids mm-hmm. both of them were children so Right. This one was rough, Joe. Yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I want to try to... <laughs> no, I mean, it's true crime. Like, I knew what I was getting myself into. Like, this is just, like, a really bummer of a story. Like, I, I don't know. Nothing good. Obviously, nothing good comes out of any of these, but, like, this one's just heavy for me. Well, um, I think that's where we're going to leave things off, unless you had anything else to say. Mm-mm. You can always catch us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to take the time, we would appreciate it if you would give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or, like, a review in general. Feel free to give us constructive criticism. Please try to make it constructive. We are sensitive. I'm a Cancer. I'm a Taurus. Um, You can also suggest cases through our Instagram. I was going to say, please reach out to us on our Instagram. It is murder and misery that's our handle and you can send us a direct message or if you know us in real life keep sending them to jill because apparently everybody's letting jill know what they want to hear i do want to say if you send something to the instagram put in the first words this is for jill's eyes only because she's not allowed to know what they are so if you have a case that you want to have us cover sure, yeah. and you don't know me personally you can send it to instagram but make sure heather's not cheating and, and caption it that so then she'll know to just let me look at it. Yeah, I mean, listen, y'all, I'm not trying to cheat. So as long as you <laughs> let me know that I'm not supposed to be looking at it, I won't. Like, I don't care. But yes, feel free to message us on the Instagram, and we will catch you guys next week with another episode. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.